This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top blue team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by the SANS Senior Instructor, John Hubbard. And now, here is your host, John Hubbard. Welcome, everyone, to this very special episode of the Blueprint Podcast Live, the first time we've ever done something like this. Uh, We're doing this because we had a season three release uh, yesterday three episodes, and we're going to be releasing a bonus episode of the panel discussion here I have with three of my favorite esteemed colleagues. To my right, we've got Katie Nichols, a threat intelligence uh, expert. We've got Heather Mahalik in mobile forensics, and we have got Jeff McJunkin, our pen test expert. So uh, what we'd like to do here is basically cover really anything, questions from the audience. We've got a few questions that we're going to bring in from online. Uh, To start this off, What I'd like to have everyone do here, I guess, is give us a little bit of uh, more detail about kind of what you do in your background and uh, what you're working on right now. Go ahead, Katie. My SANS hat is I am an instructor for Forensics 578, the Cyber Threat Intelligence class. I'm not doing that. Uh, My day job is as the director of Red Intelligence at Red Canary. Um, We do manage detection and response. So I'm lucky enough to get to watch a whole bunch of threats and try to make sure people don't get completely owned by them. So that's kind of cool. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm also a senior non-resident fellow for the Atlantic Council. So trying to inform people who do policy things, what real cyber practitioners do so they don't make really wild policies. So it's a little bit about me. I am Heather Mahalik, my SANS life, if that's what we want to call it, my big SANS hat. <laughs> I am teaching Forensics 585, which is the smartphone forensic course here at SANS. I'm also the D for curriculum lead. My day job, I am the Senior Director of Digital Intelligence at Celebrate. That's a very fancy title. And really, I'm an evangelist that gets to do research, do really cool things, kind of spread the word outward and inward. Um, Background-wise, though, I have fallen a little bit into the blue in previous jobs where I would put, what's a good way of saying this? I would help develop things and implement things to put bad things on bad people's phone to do good. If that makes sense. (laughs) On Androids and iPhones. To do good. To do good. It's for a good cause. And uh, I'm Jeff McJunkin. I do, well, my SANS life. uh, Teach the SANS Security 560 Enterprise Penetration Testing. Um, My day job as well is I run a small consultancy. Uh, I tend to, I came from the uh, defense and admin world and tend to specialize more in well, penetration tests of the entire organization, uh, not just one particular app or one particular new subnet, but what's the entire company's resilience to a breach. So that tends to be my penetration test tend to be over a longer period of time, several months, not the one or two week thing. Fantastic. Thank you. So uh, to kick this off, <clears throat> excuse me. What I'd like to do is, I guess, start with Katie. And in terms of the threat intel- the threats that we're seeing, in 2022. Is there any kind of new trend or new thing that's uh, particularly worrying or unique that has popped up maybe in the last, I don't know, six months or so that you don't think people are aware enough of? Yeah. um, So as I was thinking about this, uh, one thing I was thinking of were the initial access vectors that adversaries are starting to use. Um, Of course, we know that Microsoft has kind of gone back and forth on their blocking macro decision But we have seen pretty compellingly that adversaries over the past six months or so have shifted in response to that Microsoft decision to block macros, which hopefully they'll re-implement. I haven't checked their latest uh, guidance there. But um, right, so adversaries know what defenders are doing and how we're responding. And so what we've seen a lot of is adversaries shifting to different file types for initial access. Um, and rather than macro in uh, Word documents, Word files, Microsoft Office, we're seeing a lot of ISOs, which the other thing that's kind of interesting on ISOs, right? Students here this week, right? We use ISOs for downloading course materials. Um, my team and I were hypothesizing, like, why are adversaries, adversaries using ISOs? And we're wondering, like, maybe it's because users are like, what is this thing? <laughs> right? Like, they're used to being like, oh, malicious, you know, Word and Excel docs or zip files. Well, ISO, like I've never seen an ISO before. So kind of interesting, you know, initial access, ISO files, other things that maybe we're not as used to seeing. So that's one thing that I'm kind of watching. Adversaries like to get around what they know we're doing in the blue team world. I was absolutely wondering exactly that because I I was 
calling that with a discussion I was having uh, a week or so ago. I was like, if we turn off macros, something new is coming. Yep. What is it? Right. So I'm glad you immediately brought that up. Uh, does that make it really easy to just like block ISOs? Because most people aren't mailing ISOs. Is that simple? Depends on the org, <laughs> right? This is always like the classic in defense. We're like, yeah, you should just be able to block ISOs. Cool. And then like an org is like, no, this is essential for downloading SANS course materials or <laughs> something else like that. So yeah, what, I don't know your thoughts on this. Uh, so I guess a, a couple of things. Uh, one, usually it's not as easy as blocking the attachment because it's almost all threat actors seem to be doing, seeing, saying, sending a link to something like yep. OneDrive or Box.com. And it's much more difficult to block attachments from the browser perspective. Unfortunately, enterprise browsers don't tend to be nearly as well managed. And also um, many different container files, whether zip or 7-zip or ISO, one advantage is they tend to avoid the mark of the web that marks a lot of things as suspicious. Um, but yeah, there's there's only so many ways in. There's only so many known uh, methods of getting code execution via some file extension. And many of them, yes, if you look historically and have good logging, you might be able to block a good 80%. Is, is it all of the things you're going to be hit with? No, but it sure is nice to rule out some attacks entirely where possible. Yeah, that's that's one of those things that they're always going to find the next file extension. It seems like I've seen evolution and time after time. Uh, you know, constant changing, and they always have another one. Uh, one of the other things I, I definitely wanted to, to jump right into here is from Heather's side. Uh, what do we need to be worried about with our phones as we start to lock things down better, which I feel like we are, right? We're going password lists. We're doing some other things, right? Are phones becoming a bigger target or a different target? Uh, what's happening kind of in that space? Because we've never had anyone on the podcast talk about phones yet. They So one, I feel like, most people with phones are ignorant to security. They think setting a passcode is good enough and they have no idea what they're doing, which is really, really frightening when you think about it. Um, Android, the biggest concern with Android is people have Androids that are not up to date, not fully patched. They don't want to pay for new phones. So obviously that's a big concern. Um, with iPhone, there's so many new things out there. Obviously the zero click exploits, you have to be a big person. You're a politician. It's not going to happen, hopefully to us sitting here in this room, but ransomware will. And people will mess with you just to see what you will click on and what you will get. And I, I do a lunch show as well. And I had Kevin Repa on it. And Kevin, I was like, I would never click on this. I would never do this. And he gave me a reality check. And he was like, if I wanted to ransom your device, I would send you a link saying your son's school has an active shooter. Click on this link to figure out where to pick your child up. He's like, I guarantee you're clicking. I would. Yeah. So if, if it's personalized, I think at RSA a few years ago, I did personalized targeted attacks because all of us think, oh, we're not running as a politician. We aren't developing Teslas. <laughs> like <laughs> we're not the one that people want to attack, but we are all vulnerable and locking your device isn't good enough. And people don't want to update. And now Apple's coming out like, oh, it's going to be this full lockdown and look at all these things. If you're targeted, you can go into secure lockdown mode. It sounds like some psycho panic room. <laughs> and I'm like, everyone wants to talk about it, but I have no idea what it's going to look like. And people probably won't even know how to implement it correctly. So it's a lot of mobile ignorance, unfortunately. Huh. Interesting. Jeff, do you have something out of that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just thinking back to what you're talking about trends going on, we do see plenty of targeted attacks, right? Personalized email. And I kind of rant when people say that they do their phishing tests and they've gotten their response rate down, the click rate down to like one, two, three percent. But if you do anything remotely targeted to the organization, you see that go up 10, 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, but even further than that, you talk about initial access brokers and untargeted every time some new exploit comes out, some new proxy logon, some new exchange vulnerability, some new VPN, people are just exploiting en masse. And you see the commoditization of ransomware, that people buy their first shell for 20 bucks and kind of take it from there. It's essentially a normal penetration test at that point, getting control of the organization. So you see untargeted attacks, right? Uh, exploit en masse. And that's something to certainly to be aware of. What is your attack surface there? But certainly targeted attacks like that. You see the phishing as well. And the response rate goes up so much more. We have anything remotely targeted. If it's a, a, starting with a text message, one student uh, this week ranting about all the smishing, smishing. <laughs> inside yeah. the organization. Smishing. Yeah. Uh, you, you had mentioned Android and, and iOS. Uh, for some, the average consumer will say. Uh, if you were trying to make an informed decision, security and privacy-wise, is there a meaningful difference in your opinion, or is that something that's more hype than it is a reality when it comes to 
uh, you know, if they lost their phone, someone's trying to break into their accounts or really any of that kind of stuff. I feel like Android has a really bad reputation for this, but it's because of historical and it's open. A new Android is really, really difficult forensically. So from a forensic perspective, Android's the nightmare. I would take an iPhone any day because it's easier for us to access, even if it's locked. So if you have to be, if you're worried about security, Android would be safer, I would say, if it's new, but you have to make sure it's new and it's fully up to date and it's fully patched. And plan to be supported by the uh, manufacturer for more than the three to six months. Yes. <laughs> yes. And when that warranty runs out, you can buy Jeff's steak and wine and he will trade Androids in exchange for dinner. So that's True how story. I get my Android. <laughs> That was going to be my next question is, does the model of Android matter? I mean, obviously, if support is a thing. It but does. Like- so the manufacturer will only support updates and patches for so long. And that's the issue. So you have to shell out another $1,000 for an Android constantly. Whereas iOS, until the 6S is the first time it was restricted. Like, hey, you can no longer update. That's a really old device. Mm-hmm. So chances are good if you invest in a new iPhone, you're going to be able to update, remain fully patched, secure. Unless you have a 10 and then you have the checkmate exploit. So obviously. Interesting. Yes. I think the closest to a fair comparison to the iOS side is essentially the the pixel line where you get that long-term support and updates coming out actually immediately. Not we promise support, but sometimes they're delayed for months on end and you have no recourse. Yeah. So I, I noticed you casually dropped in there. If you have iOS you can just unlock it. <laughs> Any extrapolation that can be made on that? Um, there's just special tools that can do that stuff. <laughs> you can also do it on Android. It just it's yeah. more difficult. Yeah. File based that... encryption made things more difficult. Okay. It's more of a challenge. And all Android devices are moving toward file based encryption. But iOS has been file based encryption for a very long time. I think it all like knowing your threat model is always important though. And uh, the the threat model here of something physically grabbing your phone and having a search warrant and time is very different than the average consumer having uh, malicious APKs sent by SMS is yeah. not a, a nearly as big a concern here. Yeah. But honestly, if you think about it, if all of you had a choice right now of leaving your wallet behind or leaving your phone with me behind what would you choose <laughs> and i guarantee most people would say their wallet forget it like it's going to be easier to <laughs> everyone give me your wallet well, jeff said the magic word so i got to chime in on threat model um and you hit this too heather which is something that non-threat intel people sometimes get get a little bit wrong i would say like I, you could be like everyone should be afraid of pegasus spyware right this is right. One of those mobile malware families created by the NSO group, one of these hacker for hire groups. And we see people freaking out about Pegasus spyware on my phone. And as Heather said, like, well, maybe if you're a politician or a journalist or you're in certain regions of the world, but right, not everyone's going to bother to target you with Pegasus spyware. And so I think I, I was very happy. My threat intel heart was happy to hear both of you talk about this fact that we have to think about our threat models and what's actually going to likely target us. And a lot more likely you're going to, you know, get something that is going to make your day ruined because they're going to steal your information, right? Steal your credit card number. That's going to suck too. But right, thinking about that's more likely than maybe the scary state-sponsored actors. Yeah, I, I, I think special shout out again for initial access brokers when you're not targeted. If you have a service on the public IPv4 internet and new exploit comes out for it, there are groups that are trying to get all of the shells they can across the entire internet. And they they don't, they're not targeting you. They will happily sell that shell for five bucks or not, whatever. That's fine. Right. It doesn't have to be a targeted attack necessarily. So the, the threat model does need to incorporate the stuff you expose to the outside world that's just a lot of attack surface. I, I mean, my sysadmin heart of hearts doesn't like moving email to the cloud, but running an exchange is just a lot of attack surface to expose to the outside world nowadays. So one thing I wanted to, to touch on with the threat model, uh, if someone has a worry about like, am I thinking about the right thing? How do I test this adversary emulation? Is that the way to go? And do we have any advice from your end on how to get that right? Yes, lots of thoughts of this, and I'll, uh, I'll love Jeff's thoughts as well. Um, so prior to Red Canary, I actually worked on the MITRE ATT&CK team. 
Um, so if y'all are familiar with MITRE ATT&CK framework of different adversary behaviors. And what's cool about ATT&CK is that I think for you know the first time since I've been in this career, people are actually thinking about adversary techniques and behaviors rather than just atomic indicators, which also can be useful. But right, I think adversary emulation is totally the way to go. But as you do that, it's kind of important to try to mimic a real adversary. Um, I love my red team, my pen test friends, but sometimes they like to kind of go Leroy Jenkins and just be like, <laughs> I found this cool thing on GitHub, like YOLO, I'm just going to run this fun tool. And you're like, that's cool, Jeff, theoretically, <laughs> right? Just, you know, my, whatever your red team or friend is, but like my adversaries are using ISOs and they're using PowerShell, right? The same thing they've been doing for the past couple of years. So I think that, sorry, adversary emulation is the way to go, but thinking about emulating, not just if you're mapping to MITRE ATT&CK, the techniques, but also those procedures and think about emulating the tool set as much as you can. Um, so I think, yeah, but having testing and red teaming that's inspired by real adversaries is going to get a more realistic scenario than just running the fun tools, but you can have fun too, right? I'm not the fun police, I promise. <laughs> Okay, as long as I'm allowed to play. So uh, this gets into, I don't know, I, I, I kind of maintain this, the strict definition of penetration testing versus the strict definition of red teaming. In red teaming, your job is to exercise blue, check the detection and response capabilities. And especially in that case, yes, I'm a big fan of know your adversary and know the specific procedures. I love that you called out procedures because there's far too many uh, uh, pieces of software out there, vendors out there that will say, we cover 100% of MITRE ATT&CK, right? We check the box somewhere for every single technique, but knowing actual procedures as well is, is a big thing there. And yes, actually emulating a particular threat adversary. For strict penetration testing, though, normally the strict definition is you're testing preventive controls. Can this be done? Yes or no, regardless of the, the humans behind it. In practice, the lines get blurry on penetration testing where you're also testing detective controls and testing, do, uh, are the defenders aware? Do they have logging for this? And yes, we want to, our job is to emulate real world, realistic adversaries. I completely agree. And it's, it is too tempting at times to go Leroy Jenkins and say, I found this new thing that some researcher just put out. You know you do it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I said domain admin before lunch. I didn't say realistic adversary that got domain admin before lunch. <laughs> so I get the temptation. As, a, uh, as an organization that may be going for their first you know, pen test or red team, if the goal is to try to get the most value out of the money they're spending, should they be asking for a pen test or should they be going right to the, I need to test our blue team because really we just need to know if our defense is up. Any thoughts on that one? We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. Sometimes you end up paying more and more money for realism in an end-to-end red team engagement. If you're really fishing your way in and really doing the low and slow attacks with the, the real C2 over a longer period of time, being blunt, you often end up paying quite a premium in terms of the overall findings. It depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to exercise blue, you may spend two or three months and many tens of thousands of dollars to find that you don't really have much in the way of detective controls. 
So I would rather tend to iterate faster with sometimes we refer to assumed breach testing as red team light. Start with a compromised endpoint. Look at the post-exploitation activities that happen and what detective controls do you have in place? Do you, do you, do you even have the, the logging, let alone the actual alerting? Do you have the, the sysmon? Do you have the Windows event forwarding? Do you have, sure, the Elk or Splunk, but looking for some of this known bad post-exploitation? I just got to toss something in here. It doesn't have to cost tens of thousands of dollars, um, right? <laughs> my, my day job, Red Canary, we have an awesome library of little tests, atomic red team tests, copy and paste a command lines, right? Run that, see if like Sysmon plus Elk detects it, right? Yes, it takes time and effort, but I think that's, that's a good way to kind of get started. If you're not sure if you want to like hire someone to do all this stuff, atomic red team, really easy, open source, free, easy to do. I, I'm just going to... Add to that plug and say absolutely. Um, my friend Adam Shinchi is involved in that one over there, so it makes it a, a small world sometimes. But this gets into how people usually define purple teaming, which is totally nebulous. But those uh, atomic tests of a specific detective control, and I'd love just being able to trigger those. And look, you're going to spend that internal in-house effort either way, whether it's managing an outside vendor or doing it yourself. Do not pretend that you can spend money and not have to spend effort internally. So I completely agree. It's a great way to get a lot more bang for your buck to implement that internally. One of the things you, you kind of touched on there that reminded me of a question I've been meaning to ask someone on the podcast who knows pen testing. Uh, the new encryption standards, TLS 1.3, DOH, all those kind of things. Uh, either of you, do you see a lot of activity? Uh, are, are adversaries jumping right into those things or are the old tools still good enough? If you're pen testing, are you using things that already support that? Is that stuff out there? Fun fact, APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, the A has always been lowercase. Right? They are only <laughs> as advanced as necessary. Yes, of course, there's going to be every new technology somebody's going to use somewhere. And DNS over HTTPS has some advantages. And TLS 1.3 of it's really hard to get SSL man in the middle over TLS 1.3. You essentially have to downgrade and hope that nobody uh, will only use that. Right? It's essentially impossible to block access to the internet with TLS 1.3 and DNS over HTTPS. That said... There's a whole lot of cobalt strike out there to a lot of random domains or maybe expired domains that are already categorized as finance or healthcare, because we all know, even if you have TLS interception, you probably just allow those categories wholesale and don't even intercept. So yes, it happens, but I don't think it's a huge trend in coming more and more. And it's something you have to worry about, right? Knowing what your real world adversaries are doing, and it's not adopted in mass to my knowledge. Yeah, plus one. It, we're agreeing on a lot. This is weird. I'm not used to like being like, red teamers, you suck. No. Um, yeah, I think you make a great point that just because adversaries can do more advanced things doesn't mean they do. And I find a lot of people in this community, right, sometimes myself included, have sort of shiny object syndrome. Where we're like, what about these advanced encryption? And you're like, cool, can you detect things via other methods, right? Can you just detect normal your text command and control traffic, right? Like worry about some of the right. fundamentals, the basics before you start freaking out about the new shiny things. It's not easy to do. Yeah. We had a, a question come up that this maybe kind of connects to. We had a question from Twitter on what is a man on the side attack? <laughs> I don't know if anyone in particular wants to jump in on that one. Jeff sounds like it might be yours. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine you are a nation state who happened to be able to see lots of traffic going across the internet. And imagine you also had the capability to inject a response and spoof source IP from many places on the internet. Essentially, imagine you are able to see Wireshark coming out of an entire nation. If so, you'd be able to inject a reply from the server matching the TCP window size and uh, sequence acknowledgement numbers and such before the real server. That's men on the side. It, it's pretty much a nation state only trick, but it's a pretty damn cool trick, right? Yeah. Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> awesome. Probably not like the thing that's going to keep me up at night, right? A lot of other things to worry about, but it sounds pretty cool. I, going back to tradecraft, I use remote desktop as my lateral movement a lot. I use psexec.exe. I use WMIC. These things work and they tend to blend into what my clients already do. Mm -hmm. Is it invisible? No, there's no such thing as an invisible attack. But if you're not looking for it, and it blends in nicely, you don't need to be more stealthy than that. Yep. Uh, 
Heather, on the phone side, if you had a phone that was compromised, or if you're a person like, I, you know, I just clicked on something, I don't know, Android, iOS, uh, these are becoming more and more opaque boxes where we, well, maybe not so much Android, but iOS certainly is, right? Uh, what could a normal person with free-ish tools do to verify? Like, how do people know if their phone's compromised, really, is what I'm asking. Question. So I feel like everyone thinks their phone is compromised when they <laughs> stream too much, they are over on their bills. Um, one of the biggest things, honestly, is what do you share publicly? People, we overshare all the time. We post where we are, who we're with. We're fine friends with everyone on the planet. Things that you can use to do good can be used to do horrible harm to you as well. But if you have an iPhone, you can do an iTunes backup and you can look for key files. And I blog about this all the time. But there's one file specifically called TCC, Transparency, Consent, and Control. And if you look at it, you can see what has access to your camera, your microphone, and your location. And Apple, they're weirdos. They call it Liverpool. They can't say location, so they have to make it a little bit complex. But you can look at this file and you can use the stuff that we provide for NetWars and for NetWars. You can use any free tool to look at it. You want to look at that one database. And if you look at the three things that are used for spyware, stalkerware, you'll be at least alerted to the apps that are installed because the malware is an app that's installed. On Android, it's actually easiest with Android 12. Um, privacy dashboard with Android 12 tracks the last 24 hours of everything that uses your camera, microphone, and location. And there's a fantastic blog by Josh Hickman. And he also writes a lot of malware blogs. He goes by binary hick. So if you look at binary hick blog, it's fantastic. And almost everything he provides is also for free. You could use anything that can look at ext4. Get a little backup and do a little digging. It's fun. That's awesome. Forensicate for free. Nice. Uh, one more shout out for Android 12 and above. Also added essentially a notification light for your microphone or your webcam yes. being on. It's just a nice feature to, to know that the equivalent of your laptop webcam having the light, finally having that. And there is no application layer way of removing that mm -hmm. light, which is a nice feature. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is, can we trust the light? <laughs> and honestly, most I had one iPhone ever that had malware on it, legitimate malware. And the case came to me. I'm like, no, I don't even know what to do. I teach this stuff. I don't know how to do this. It's hard. It's it's really hard. Android malware. I'm so used to it, and I can look at these application files all the time and tear them down. But iPhone's intimidating when it comes to that aspect. And I think people are really unaware that you can have a completely locked down iPhone. You do one simple thing wrong, and people have access. But often it's you're giving the access. You don't even realize it. It's like I'm friends with Katie and using fine friends and Katie is doing things maliciously. Just kidding. Katie would never do that. <laughs> she, she would do it to a red team or friends, but she wouldn't do that to blue folk, deeper folk. <laughs> so those are some awesome forensics tools. We had another question on Twitter I wanted to hit as well. Uh, does anyone have a favorite blue team tool? My favorite tool is CyberChef. If you have not heard of CyberChef, we got some nods in the audience. Excellent. It's an open source tool created by the British government. Yes, it's the British government spy agency, GCHQ. No, no one has found any kind of backdoors that they're spying on people. Um, but why I like CyberChef so much is it lets you do all kinds of decoding, decryption, text transformation. And why it's awesome is that it lets you do things really easily in a simple graphical user interface, you make recipes, you're a chef, right? Things that you used to need to know how to script to do. And that's one thing that right, I really believe about cyber threat intel or cybersecurity in general, right? No one knows everything, right? Not everyone knows how to write code. And so trying to make tools that are easy to use, but that can do powerful things like decode adversaries encoded PowerShell especially if those adversaries are red teamers, right? <laughs> CyberChef, really, really awesome tool. Uh, it's free, open source, highly recommend that one. Go ahead. I'm gonna go <laughs> plus one for CyberChef. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I often live in the like the, the legacy, the on-prem, the looking for those weird old devices. And coming from sysadmin background and a whole bunch of Active Directory stuff, I'm happy to be wearing my shirt for it today because today was Bloodhound Day in San Security 560, but Bloodhound is my favorite tool for defenders as well, because I, I feel far too often people think of it as an attack tool. 
I think of it just as much an attack tool as Nessus or Qualys or Nmap as an attack tool. Like you're finding not vulnerabilities, but misconfigurations. And for something that's been around as long as Active Directory, pretty much every organization has had some misconfigurations over time. There is Bloodhound Enterprise, a bit more Defender-focused, uh, but even the free and open source Bloodhound, it's not an attack tool. It's a wonderful tool for defenders as well. And look, if your attackers are going to run the same thing, you may as well run it too first. Yes, absolutely. Uh, are there any other tools that you teach in class or that you know about that are like primarily red team, but like you're like, the blue team needs to run this first? I know there's probably a number of answers to that question. Anything stick out? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I was not expecting that one. But um, the people who control your standard desktop image for the corporate environment, that's the most likely machine to be compromised. That is the first domino looking for what attackers commonly do. They don't have to privilege escalate, but looking for privilege escalation opportunities on your standard desktop image. So tools like PowerUp or uh, SharpUp is the C-sharp equivalent. It looks for privilege escalation opportunities because you can fix them. And when you fixed it and move that change out to your entire enterprise, you've increased the security of your organization in a very palpable way very quickly. And yeah, think of it as an attack tool, but not necessarily. You can use it to shore up your own defenses as well. Yeah, one of the ones I always talk about in class is like things like seatbelt, where it's just like it enumerates stuff that a lot of blue teamers, especially if you're new, is just like, oh, I didn't know you could do that, right? Like you can just dump out the Sysmon config and the you know the antivirus config and all that stuff that's just like basic info that might be assumed to be secret, but is definitely not, and definitely gives them a big hands or heads up on what they might be running into. Uh, things like that are, I think, really important for blue teamers to know about. Uh, did you have some yeah, it's interesting because I think these are great ways you can start to test things out. But as both of you were talking, I was like seatbelt, sharp up, bam, red teamers. It's kind of funny, like <laughs> on the defensive side, when I'm watching and I'm like, is this a red team or is this a proper villain as we call them? Right. Those two tools, I'm like, bam, I, I can spot you a mile away. So I think that just goes to the importance of right when we're talking about testing adversary emulation, testing in depth. This is a challenge I see, right? Any testing is great. Test up, see how your blue team does, but make sure you don't just rely on, cool, we ran sharp up, we ran seatbelt, we ran Mimi cats. We're good to go, right? Well, other adversaries might use custom scripts, might use different methods. So absolutely good tools, but uh, I just wanted to chime in from the, from the threat <laughs> intel perspective, peanut gallery. <laughs> if uh, we're trying to block some of these tools from being run, is there a, like a set of features where you're like, absolutely, people at least need to turn on this and that and that, like feature-wise with Windows, you know, AppLocker, WDAC, anything like that? Like, what is the stuff that's going to be the best bang for the buck that actually stops real attackers? I was going to say AMC, you I, think? I, yes, uh, AMC with latest.net. So you get uh, AMC inspection of .NET assemblies. Otherwise, you essentially mostly just get PowerShell. So having latest.net is a big deal for that. Um, for those who might not know, AMC. Sorry, the anti-malware scanning interface introduced with Windows 10. And uh, essentially, before AMZ, anything run inside of any dynamic language, antivirus was essentially blind to. You might catch a PS1 file being loaded from disk, but if you launch PowerShell and type it in, you're good to go. And I'll be honest, my, uh, my actions are often browsing to GitHub, clicking the raw of the script, and using that good old hacker technique, control A, control C, control V. Copy and paste the script into a live PowerShell prompt. And if AMZ is not enabled, I'm good to go. <laughs> and the .NET piece. .NET, is that something, well, I, this is kind of a leading question, but why .NET? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, more and more out of uh, command and control platforms, there is just so much available in terms of off the shelf, either beacon object files, which are a whole different tangent, but .NET assembly, so C-sharp, piles of code that can be run directly from memory, not touching disk. There's a lot more to tradecraft and good OPSEC than just not touching disk, uh, but it does have some strong advantages for not giving intelligence up to my threat intel friends. And proper villains also like .NET, not just red teamers. So. <laughs> One of the other questions I get, Katie, for you, um, all the time, Intel sources, right? We bring up, you really need to have good threat intelligence. And so, of course, the next question is, okay, where does my company, you know, in industry X get good threat intelligence? And once I get it, how do I know it's actually good? The vendor is going to tell me it's good, right? 
Uh, where do we get it and how do we actually check that? Challenging question. Come to Forensics 578, John. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so to start to address this, I think it's first off important to think about what is intelligence, right? Simple definition of intelligence, analyzed information that supports some kind of decision. A lot of people think of things like lists of IP addresses and hash values as intelligence. That's data or information. It's not intelligence, right? It becomes intelligence when you take some kind of information and then apply it to help someone do something, right? Help your SOC analyst decide which of these zillion alerts they should actually look at, right? Help inform decision from your leadership about mergers and acquisitions or your threat hunters, what they should hunt for, or your adversary emulators, who they should mimic when they're operating. So when you're looking for information about adversaries and threats, the good news is that there is a ton out there, right? There are absolutely commercial sources, but there is so much in open source, right? Today in our class, we are just talking about this. Um, for example, the SANS Internet Storm Center, those folks are giving talks tonight. Um, they, on a daily basis, write these diaries, these amazing posts about malware that's seen in the wild. Twitter, social media is a great source for free information. People are really selfless, actually. A lot of malware researchers are out there just saying, here's what we're seeing from QBot today, right? Follow those folks. Blog posts from different companies, right? My company, uh, Microsoft, CrowdStrike, Mandiant. There's so much free out there. So I always encourage people, if you want to you know, start doing threat intel, looking at some different sources, start with open source free things, but then think about how that helps your organization right? That's what intelligence really is. So remember, it's not just going to be like, set it and forget it. Cool. We read a blog post. We did threat intelligence. No, you have to give it to someone to support some kind of decision. And how might we know if it's good threat intelligence? Are there any like metrics you look at? Or is it like, obviously relevant to your industry, right? Like things we're, we're looking for specialists in what you're looking for. But uh, as a non-expert in threat intelligence, who's just trying to get some information to help, is there any quick sanity check on, oh yeah, that, that's the right thing for us to be getting? Yeah, so there's a really great uh, acronym that Sergio Caltagirone, really awesome guy, works at Dragos now, created the diamond model. He uses something called CART. Good intelligence should be complete, accurate, relevant, and timely. So those are four things to look for. Um, I also tell people, as you're reading stuff that's out there, use like stuff you learned in middle school, high school about evaluating sources. If there were a whole bunch of misspellings, no, right? Also look out for people who are trying to scare you, who are like, wow, this attack is super duper scary. So buy our product, right? Watch out there. Take that with a grain of salt. Always be looking at what's the evidence that's actually presented there. Does that make sense for whatever argument they're trying to make? So just applying, right? Good uh, source, you know, consideration, things you learned back in school, right? If something is misspelled, Maybe they didn't do it that carefully. Yep. Jeff, did you have something to add to that? Yeah. I, uh, Katie had a great series of points on what to look for. Let me just be very, very blunt in what to not look for, right? Anytime you are buying lists of IP addresses, lists of domain names, and lists of hashes, you are buying burned C2 that will never, ever be used again. And oftentimes, even if it does come up, you don't have anywhere to go. It is just data, not intelligence. If you don't know what to do next with your alert because of your threat intel, it wasn't intel. It was just data. Um, and I'll do one small shout out. I don't normally vendor shout out, but they do such good stuff. They're not threat intel per se, but very adjacent, right? Uh, enabling uh, SOC analysts and threat intelligence folk looking uh, at threats inside your organization, what's phoning home, and getting more intelligence to it, uh, gray noise for, hey, if something is phoning home to some box on the internet, right? Hopefully, beacon analysis, shout out for Rita, amazing stuff. You find a lot of interesting, unusual, and sometimes malicious things, uh, but having that context of, oh, yes, the thing that you're beaconing to is also known to be used for C2, or we've also seen it for scanning outbound, right? Gray noise is, they do many things, but uh, very well known for being able to rule out some traffic pretty quickly. A Microsoft product talking to Microsoft is not inherently non-malicious, but it's usually less interesting than some of the, the louder stuff inside your environment. Is there any way to get into phone traffic that's like an easy grab, or is it better to just go on the forensic checks for am I compromised or not? Because, you know, obviously we have a whole bunch of tactics for yeah. check DNS, check 
what's connecting to what, but like phones, you know, you can put it in a proxy, maybe. Well, what's difficult is level of access. So it depends on the level of forensic access that you can get to it. You can definitely do dynamic analysis and watch it, but also it depends on the device. And most of those for, for Android, it's going to require root access and getting that on newer devices isn't easy. I would have no idea how to do that on an iPhone. I'm not even going to lie. Like it's possible, <laughs> but I would have no idea. I don't want to know. <laughs> it's not something I'm interested in trying. Uh, uh, just a, one, small, one small shout out if you want to go that direction. One, uh, it's not too uncommon to see for uh, emulated devices, um, including there are plenty like Jenny Motion and such that allow you to root and be fairly realistic at Google Play installed and such. And if you want something to Google to go further down, uh, Will Dorman uh, from CERT has something called Tapioca, where essentially you have uh, men in the middle of all of the traffic from that device. This doesn't help you with CERT pinning, though. Right? If an application will only accept uh, traffic from a given certificate, you're in a tough place. You, can, you have to change that application specifically. It's hard. Yeah, that, that would be a, I've, I've run into that before. I've tried to do mobile phone app interception way back in like 2014. And, and right away, there was a lot of applications that were just not going to have it no matter what you did. I didn't actually find a really interesting thing back then. It was like, I think it was Snapchat. I was intercepting traffic trying to see, could I save snaps, right? And inside that traffic, there was actually a hidden message. So like, if you're reading this right now, apply for a job at the secret link at Snapchat. I was like, oh, all right, that's pretty cool. So That's I didn't hilarious. end up working at Snapchat, but they were like, hey, if you're digging in here, we want you to work for us. So you never know what you're going to find when you, when you do that kind of stuff. Um, something Jeff, you had brought up earlier, you know, you're buying burned indicators, right? Uh, one of the things we always point out and basically every InfoSec presentation ever, the pyramid of pain, right? If you're blocking hashes, IPs and all that sort of stuff, uh, people are going to move around it rather quickly. If you're trying to disrupt a pen tester, move to the higher things like that. Um, what would be incredibly painful as a blue teamer if you were trying to do a pen test? Uh, like, what's the move where you're like, oh, crap, they're doing that? Is there anything that sticks out? Quick response via honeypots. There's all sorts of honeypots out there, whether we're talking about honey files or something. One thing I love doing is looking through the open file shares and finding some interesting data there. But if you uh, have an alert on anyone who traverses a folder, and I'm programmatically traversing the entire file share, I'm going to trip that. If there is, uh, what was the rather famous most recently of uh, some Excel spreadsheet full of passwords for some vendor for some breach or another? But if you have, right, domain user passwords.xlsx on a file share, I'm going to click it. I can't click fast enough. <laughs> if you have some alerts on who opens that, and it's in a file share that is never referenced. When people think of Honeypot and think of, well, it's a purpose-built device and any interaction is inherently malicious, but it's anything that attackers look for that regular users don't. Beyond files, any other tactics for Honeypots that you fall in and you see people <laughs> fall in or you just don't want to encounter? Uh, so there's plenty of pen testerisms that I'm not sure how often it happens on the uh, the, the real world. What do you say? Uh, proper villains. Proper okay. villain side. <laughs> I, I only they have top pretend to be villains. <laughs> yeah. uh, silly things like the uh, the password for a user account being in the description of the account. Pen testers always love to talk about finding that. Have it be... Uh, for an account that has password colon and some password not actually be the right password or yes have it be the right password but have it be uh, access denied to everything and see who tries to log on right so honey tokens honey credentials uh, if you want to go really far on this uh, Matt Toussaint had a talk a few years back on seeding boxes with credentials. If you want to go really far down this route, knowing which specific machine attacker compromised by which credentials that you seeded behind uniquely on each endpoint, you can know which endpoints were compromised. That gets way down deep into the weeds, though. That would be super cool. Can I, can I ask a question? <laughs> this is something that I sort of changed my thinking on, so I'm curious what, what you all think. Um, do you feel like you need to be like a mature security team to do those kind of deception techniques. Cause I used to think more like deception was for like really mature, large security ops teams. But now, like, as you're talking, and I think John Strand, right. Challenged this, you know, previously in a presentation, like maybe there is value in just doing something simple to, you know, put in an alert for a honey token, something like that. Like, do you think even less mature teams can do this? I think the least mature teams should spend the most immediate attention on detective controls. And in terms of bang for the buck, 
honey tokens, honey accounts, honey things, honey pots are, are a fantastic indicator, right? If you want something uh, free, there's, um, oh, I'm blanking the name of the vendor that has essentially their honey tokens in many different formats. Canary tokens. Canary tokens. Thank you. Canary tokens is really good bang for your buck. They have like a Word document that anytime you uh, click on it or open it up, it automatically phones home and sends an alert, right? If that's logins and passwords.docx, on a publicly available file share. Your investment is almost nothing and you get so much out of it because so many organizations, look, uh, if you think of like the, the curve of people exploiting over time, of course, an attacker with unlimited time will eventually accomplish their goal. Of course, your job as a defender is to detect them and kick them out before they accomplish that goal. And for many organizations, I, I'm gonna take the, the bold claim here and say the majority of organizations the only way an attacker can get, can get caught, other than alerting the defenders through ransomware, is if they break production somewhere. I'm not saying mature organizations by any means, but that's the only detective control the majority of organizations have. Add more than one detective control, please. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Fired up. John, I'm, I'm curious. You've worked with so many. I know I'm not supposed to answer, ask the questions, but whatever. I'm curious. Like, what, what do you think on deception stuff? Have you seen like less mature socks to deception things, honey tokens as well? Yeah. So when are you ready to do this? Right. I think one of the biggest themes in all the classes I teach is, uh, teach are, is priorities, right? It's like, what is going to be the best absolute use for your time? So if you are like in, you know, the caveman era of defense, right? And you're barely getting anything done, honeypot's probably not for you. But where do you run into the point where, yeah, it's going to be useful to start setting some traps out there? I think pretty quick because they're low cost to deploy. They're generally pretty high fidelity. They don't take a whole lot of management. There's not a whole lot of risk in a lot of cases, especially if you go with vendors that make those things, right? Hopefully they're doing their job, right? Um, I think you could jump into that fairly quickly. And, you know, with, with people like Jeff saying, yeah, honeypots are terrible, right? Like that's, <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's a thing that I think is a, a very valuable technique um, for, for a lot of teams not too far after getting started. Uh, I would I would look at it like that. Um, the question I was going to ask you next is kind of from the threat intelligence space. I don't remember where I read this recently, but I, the analogy I read was like there are certain parts in getting from you know this multi-stage attack from point A to all the way at the end of you know point Z when this thing is a disaster, and some of them you can take a whole bunch of different routes. And the analogy was basically you're going from New York to DC or from New York to LA. You can drive there a whole bunch of routes. You know you block one highway, you're getting there another way. However, if you blow up the person's driveway, they can't back out of the driveway, right? That's the one choke point that you've really hurt the campaign. Is there any way to find that kind of thing? Do you see anything like that in threat intelligence that just screams like, this is a really painful thing to implement, do, block, whatever? Or how might someone find that for their own network? Really interesting one. And this is something when I was even on the MITRE attack team, we tried to think of with all of the attack techniques out there, like, are there certain ones that are choke points that like an adversary has to go through to succeed? Um, the one that comes to mind for me is lateral movement, right? Because, okay, Jeff gets on a single box. Cool. If he's just on my machine, he can't do that much damage, right? If he really wants to do damage, he's going to have to move from my machine to Heather's machine to John's machine. And so I think lateral movement techniques, and there are you know, few common protocols, right? SMB, RDP, the ransomware deployment protocol, right? <laughs> These common ways that adversaries move laterally. So, you know, I, I sort of go under the philosophy, you're not going to prevent everyone from getting in, but if you can limit the damage, Right. I think that's a good choke point looking for lateral movement. I, I agree. I usually point to two, one of them being lateral movement, because there's only so many ways. It's it's not a very terribly small number, but it's it's a finite number. And frankly, even if there's a large set of possible techniques, there's a relative few that are going to be used by any given threat actor. Right. And RDP, PS exec. I've heard arguments that uh, if you don't use SysInternals PSExec internally, you should ban its use, but keep it available. And whoever uses it, that's a really <laughs> solid indicator. I've heard good arguments there. Uh, the other thing I'll add is earlier you can detect that first shell an attacker gets in your environment. I saw a great tweet from another uh, pen tester, red teamer about this. They're so nervous because they invested so much in that first shell. If you have good detective abilities, like, and, and this is where you can iterate uh, with your folk of 
that first shell, if you can kick them out then before they've gotten credentials. The, the thing I worry about focusing on lateral movement is usually by then they've proven that they have credentials that are administrative on multiple places. So by the time you see lateral movement, they might be simultaneously moving to a good half dozen places and setting up persistence in a half dozen locations inside your organization. And that gets tough, right? Remediation is really hard when you have multiple persistence mechanisms in multiple places, unique C2s, all right? And some of them being legitimate, whether it's some of them being TeamViewer or Zoho or uh, Tor hidden service of some internal service, and you have a lot of ways back into the environment. That's what I worry about from a defense perspective. It gets really hard. <laughs> so anywhere you can grab it earlier, on that first endpoint where the attackers invested so much and you just smack them down and they might be disheartened enough to move on to the next person, right? You can be the, the not the slowest one running away from the bear, as it were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to that point, reading some of the, the leaks that have come out recently, the Conti leak is a perfect example, right? That was a gold mine of like for defenders reading that saying, oh, these are exactly the things they do, right? And you mentioned TeamViewer and there's a lot of other legitimate but remote access programs that are out there. Uh, any names that jump into anyone's mind where it's like, if you see this, it might be ransomware, especially if you know you don't use that application. Uh, anyone run into anything or use anything on pen tests <laughs> that really slides under the radar? AnyDesk is one, AnyDesk, um, Atera, um, I think RMM, is that what it's called? We have a, my team wrote a whole blog post on these, but it's, it's kind of scary team viewer. We see really commonly. So, right. right I, I mentioned Soho and specifically Soho. Soho. Yep. Um, one I use a lot, uh, because there's a large number of organizations that focus a lot on endpoint controls. And if you're, if they're just seeing the network traffic, they're very blind to a lot of things that happen. So, uh, giving up my own tradecraft here, I love Chisel, <laughs> outbound HTTPS that's actually SSH behind the scenes, and it brings to a server under my control a SOX proxy that I could just proxy all of my traffic. And from the defender's perspective, you see the raw network traffic, but the, the source machine doesn't have any source program that would normally make that traffic, which could be an indicator all itself, but normally you don't get much in the way of indicators from raw network traffic itself. That's one spot where I happily prey upon the blind spots of my clients that way yeah <laughs> the other thing i wanted to ask was uh you mentioned once multiple backdoors get introduced in the environment it's very difficult always talking about this in class as well right like how long have they been there and how paranoid do you need to be about multiple backdoors it's a very well-known tradecraft in the red team and actual i assume proper attacker community that once you get one backdoor you try to get the second one like as fast as you can right is there is there any way that you can what would you recommend blue teams do that they're like well this has been here a little bit long right can we can't assume it's going to be the same backdoor necessarily right that you would use so any tactics that are like can help you figure out how deep did this get that's where you it comes down to having a good telemetry inside your environment and once you know a given uh, user account was used from a source machine to a destination machine, you can attribute that to attacker, you have three things to pivot on. Where else did that user log in? What else did that source machine do? What else did that destination machine do? And you just have to work your way through each of those, investigating each of the actions taken by that user account, that source machine, that destination machine. Uh, because attackers are made of atoms, they deal with the same physics that we do. It's not magic. We have to use the boxes that we have access to. This is where I think that actually threat intel can be pretty powerful, um, especially if you're dealing with right, potentially a long-running intrusion. Um, that's overwhelming to try to look at all the different techniques, all the things adversaries could do. And if you do have a sense of maybe what malware family is this, okay, what family has that maybe been seen with? Are there certain adversaries who've used that in the past might give you clues of what to look for. So I think that's where you know threat intel can be a force multiplier for incident responders, for those investigating intrusions. Yep. I, I think there's a common misconception that attribution to a group of humans is a useful thing for most organizations to do. And that Robert Emily made very clear to me once that, no, it's not. But attribution to a threat group gives you a lot of actionable intelligence as an organization. If you know which particular group, look up the corresponding uh, MITRE wiki page and look through like it's not going to be everything you look for but if your threat group based on the malware used happens to use zoho or team viewer more often maybe you should look for team viewer both on the network the outbound traffic as well as any recent installs 
Heather, well, one thing I wanted to ask from this, uh, when there are mobile phone compromises, are there any tie-ins to the rest of the network that you ever see there? Is, is the phone usually the goal of the, I mean, certainly it's a goal, but have you ever seen that used as a pivot point? It's definitely possible from my real world experience. I have not seen it, but it's, I think in corporate environments, that is kind of the ultimate goal is to land on your device and then pivot from there. If it's a personal attack, then it's more they landed, they're good. That's all you get. But definitely getting access to the networks and then being able to traverse and do everything else would be more beneficial. But I've never worked it in real life. Have you ever seen like an MDM get compromised and like multi phones, you know, all get pushed something malicious or anything like that? So I've done some testing at an old <laughs> place I work to see if we could do this and how... I've also tried, so I've done testing on it. I've never seen it in the wild and in real life, but I've also myself proved to my company how easy it is to overcome their little restrictions that they think keep us safe. And it's called the browser. So simple <laughs> things where they're like, okay, AirWatch is on your device and this is so safe. And now we're not allowing you to do X, Y, and Z. And then I treat it almost like how my son treats me. And I try the other ways around and say, okay. I've overcome you by doing these things, which then make everyone completely vulnerable and unsafe. If you ever want to get rid of all of your faith in MDM, try to lock down your child from their iOS device and a web browser yes. and find so many ways around it, whether it's clicking a link within another application, yes. et cetera. So I did sand securing the family and listening to the interviews that they did with my son. And he's like, well, my mom thinks that I'm protected <laughs> this way. So this is what I do instead. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like listening, my kids sell each other passcodes, screen time passcodes. My daughter who is five sold my son the screen time passcode for $2. And I'm like, it's insane. I know you don't sell the passcode itself. You sell access to it. $1 for every time I enter it for you. You don't give away the golden goose. You need to teach her this. We're giving away all sorts of terrible ideas here. Hmm. So in the interest of time and in the interest of not giving more <laughs> awesome red teaming ideas out, one final question I want to end this with on, on a lighter note that we got from Twitter as well. Uh, we just mentioned a bunch of advanced techniques and all sorts of things. Uh, the question is, with all of this knowledge that you all have acquired over your long and storied careers, do you still feel imposter syndrome? And do you still feel like you're lost in the sea of infosec knowledge? I do. I can start always. Yeah, absolutely. I, there's always something I, smarter. There's always something different. Um, I'm always terrified when people are like, hey, thanks to you, I did this. And now this occurred. I'm like, ooh, was that validated? <laughs> like, did I blog one night with too much bourbon? Like, what is it? How valid I, is this research? I, I think there's a, a common graphic people bring up, the Venn diagram of the things that you know and the things that everybody else know. And nobody here is a superset or a subset of anybody else. I, I, I like to say that InfoSec is a body of knowledge combined with that adversarial mindset. And we all have different backgrounds, different bodies of knowledge, and that's fine, right? There are some areas that I know well, some areas that I know don't, but even stuff that I know well, somebody's gonna have something, some little bit there that I don't know and vice versa. There's realms of information that I have no clue over. Yep. And that's okay. <laughs> yep, we all feel it, right? And there's this idea like, oh, SANS instructors, you know everything. Sorry, SANS folks in the room, cover your ears. We don't. Weird. <laughs> but one of the things that we teach in the Intel class is uh, as Intel analysts, we use outside experts, right? I'm not going to be the expert on pen testing, red teaming. I'm not the expert on mobile forensics, but I sure as heck know the people who do that. So yeah, we all feel it and we all have areas to grow. And I think being humble and just having that appetite for learning, right? That's what makes us all good cybersecurity professionals, honestly. I would go ahead. Oh, no, that's a fantastic uh, <laughs> note there, right there. Of be humble, be always willing to learn, right? And be willing to share what you have learned with others. The other way to think about that Venn diagram is boy, if you can connect to the people around you and tap into their knowledge as well, how much better we can all be off. Yep. I think it's also okay to be wrong. And a lot of people don't want to be wrong. Like I've written blogs and I talked about them in class today where I was clearly wrong. I said something was encrypted. It wasn't. It's in cloud. I just couldn't find it. And then I reblogged a new one about my old one saying, hey, I was wrong there and no one called me out. So shame on all of you for just <laughs> believing me, but it's okay to be wrong. And I think so many of us are so fearful of someone calling us out. I mean, like you should know all these things and you're supposed to be this person. Yeah. But I also think that's what makes our jobs exciting. 
Absolutely. That's kind of what I was going to end it on is I don't remember who said it earlier in the week, but I think uh, paraphrasing the, the statement was something to the effect of being an infosec is a practice in constantly feeling like an idiot. But like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good thing, right? Because if we got to the end of the knowledge, things would start being boring and we would probably switch careers and we wouldn't get to do all this cool stuff. So uh, with that, you know, that's the reason that keeps me doing this podcast, talking to folks like you. Thank you so much for being on the panel and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you to the audience. And thank you for listening for all those that will catch the podcast and the live stream as we repost it and get it online and all of our various avenues. So thank you very much and have a